All right, thank you so much for tuning in to Forward Thinking Founders. This is the podcast where we highlight undiscovered talent. We're scanning Y Combinator, Pioneer, Product Hunt, Twitter, Indie Hackers, all these different networks to find really interesting founders and interesting projects and startups, and we feature them on the podcast before you've probably heard of any of them. And what's great about this is you get to follow along on their journey as they become more and more successful and say, I knew them when. So thank you so much for tuning in to Forward Thinking Founders. And let's get into our next founder you haven't heard of, but you will. All right. How's it going, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Forward Thinking Founders, where we're talking to founders about their companies, their visions for the future, and how the two collide. Today, I'm very excited to be talking to Jazzy Tour, who is the founder of Cabtrex. Jazzy, welcome Hello. to the show. How's it going? Good, Matt. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. It was a little overcast today in Phoenix, Arizona, and I actually it was way more than overcast. It was very wet, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I, I love rain in Phoenix. So, yeah, I'm having a good day. Really, I hate rain, so I don't know if we get along. I'm oh, just no. Well, so for me, for me, rain just it doesn't happen a lot in Phoenix. Yeah. So when yeah. it happens, I'm just chilling. You know, I put the I put the I open up the window, put the screen yeah. over it, get on my couch. It's kind of cold. You know, I'm into that stuff. Sitting up here in Canada, we get a lot of that rain and snow. So when we get the sun, we yeah, like it. Not, see, that's that's yeah, it's the opposite. Yeah, that's funny. Well, cool. Well, aside from the weather, another thing that's going on is Captrax, which is the company that you're working on. For the people that, that aren't familiar with it, can you kind of dive into uh, what you're working on with Captrax? Yeah, of course. I appreciate you having me on here to chat about that. So I guess just a brief rundown of what the company is. We essentially help to digitize brick and mortar pharmacies by providing them a turnkey doorstep delivery solution that doesn't necessarily take ownership of the entire customer relationship the way a marketplace like Uber Eats or something like that would. So when you think about what's going on in the market, there's a number of large competitors that are increasing their footing or entering the retail pharmacy market that are typically digitally native companies such as like Amazon and PillPack and so on and so forth. And a key area in which competition is going to, in which there'll be a lot of competition is uh, convenience. And at the center of convenience is doorstep delivery, which all these existing providers, which I had mentioned, all have the capability to do. The existing retailers have only about two out of three of the elements necessary to thrive in this environment, which we think will change in the future. They have uh, an existing customer base, which is obviously necessary, and they typically have e-commerce platforms through which customers can order different products. However, across the board, they most of them lack the logistics network to actually get this to their customers. So that is the essential piece which we provide, which we think will become more and more important as the competition increases from these incoming players. So would you say as a potentially maybe oversimplification, are you kind of like logistics as a service, like the logistics part of your stack, like we'll, we'll handle it in, in a way. Yeah, you could say that it's kind of out of sight, out of mind for the pharmacist at that point. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. So let's go a little deeper. So you, well, let's actually just use an example. Let's say I, you know, person, a Jonathan, you know, is a pharmacist and it, 
he needs to get uh tell me if i'm going down the right track here. he needs to get like medication you know to susie or you know suzanne who uh, lives in the same city but needs it shipped to her are you saying that cab tracks would be the company that goes through the process of getting that the medication from point a to point b or if that's completely wrong please uh please correct me no yeah that's that's exactly what it is and i guess to give you a little bit more explanation on that typically prius the pharmacies across the board across the country were using local courier companies to be able to uh, get them, get their customers their medication. The industry at large was pretty fragmented in that space, and they would all have different service capabilities, different capacities. They would typically have to deal with uh, really early cutoffs and very large delivery windows, so they never know when their customer is going to get their medication. They have to enter their orders before like 11 a.m., and they're not really paying an incredibly reasonable rate for these services. So with us, the pharmacists can send out their orders multiple times per day because all of our grouping and sorting is done algorithmically and we don't rely on any sort of central sorting facilities like these, like the traditional courier model. We're able to go from more of a point to point model and offer the service running throughout the day so that the customers can actually get their medication when they're home to receive it. So are you kind of in a way uh, taking on uh, um, like the Amazon Prime model, but codifying it for this specific vertical? Like I feel like Amazon Prime figured out this really quick shipping and now everyone's trying to like figure out how to compete. Are you, are you, are you all kind of like augmenting all these people to help them compete with Amazon and the other companies that have figured out the logistics of doing one day, two day shipping? Yeah, exactly. And that's going to be a, a larger and larger piece of it as Amazon enters the retail pharmacy space in Canada. It's obviously already there in the U.S. with PillPack. And they're growing and the pharmacies are feeling the pinch and they need something to be able to compete with that. That's so interesting. It kind of actually reminds me of the same situation of when um amazon still amazon is such a big company like they, so amazon go did that you know they launched and you, you know you can go to grocery stores and you know not to check out it does it automatically and then there's this company whose name escapes me which has pretty much uh, allowed you to you for other people to compete and use that same technology um and it's just it's just interesting how like that's it's all good that it's happening because it proves that there's a market and that's kind of where i feel like you're at like like there's the incumbents and you're just helping the, the smaller guys compete which i feel like will make you a ton of money like is this something that like how long have you been working on this and what what have you learned so far about the market poll um to compete with the gigantic you know behemoth of amazon yeah, I think it's, well, it's been like a year and almost a half, so almost about 16 months. And in terms of what, we, what we've what we learned uh, specifically, like about the market in general, there's a large number of things, but I mean, we can go into granular detail with the differences between the uh, classes of pharmacies and, you know, the strategy that we developed to be able to actually 
increase our uh, increase our sales faster than we would have initially because we took advantage of this B2B model that exists within pharmacies. But at large, in terms of competing with Amazon, in Canada specifically, Amazon doesn't really exist. However, noticing what's happening in the US, the, sorry, Amazon exists in Canada, but Pillpack doesn't exist in Canada. <laughs> Let me clarify that, really. For sure. Uh, and the pharmacists see what's happening in the US, so they do see a compelling need to be able to uh, digitize their solutions before they get to the point where they're too far behind. So I think that's been a really good signal for us that these guys who typically you would think, you know, are fairly risk adverse and don't really think too far ahead on these things actually are, and they're paying attention. So that definitely gives us a large amount of validation when we're uh, running our sales and we can actually have valuable conversations with the pharmacists themselves. And I definitely don't want to get into your secret sauce that like, you know, the proprietary stuff, if you, if you don't want to, I don't want to go there, but I'm kind of like interested. You must have quite an operation or like quite a, a software or a combination of the two to enable pharmacies to, to do one day or two day um, shipping, just really, really quick shipping. How, if you don't mind me asking, like, how do you have the knowledge or how did you obtain the knowledge to build something that can help others compete with different behemoths? Like what's, is it your background? Did you just learn a lot on the job? Is it a partner? Like it seems like a tall order and it's awesome that you're executing on it. Yeah. So I guess there's a number of different areas within that in terms of like the actual tech stack and everything. I'm not technical myself. So I guess recruitment would be a, an aspect there, which definitely helped out. I was able to find a really good team to build this out. But more important than anything, I think it's actually understanding the customers and their needs and being there on a day-to-day -day basis to actually see the little things which add up to the bigger picture. So, I mean, when we first started and still, I visit pharmacies almost every day, right? Just to see if the actual features which we're putting forward are actually valuable or what the potential what the potential errors are before they actually come to fruition, which definitely helps our oper operational model because we develop sort of uh, a number of contingency plans that allow us to avoid any major disasters, which I'm sure you could understand there could be many of in the logistics space given the nature of the unpredictability of what could happen. Definitely, yeah, that makes sense. At what point do you do you think that like do you feel like you're always going to be spending time with your customers in the way that you do? Um, I guess it kind of goes to like lever high leverage activities. Obviously, in the beginning, the most the highest leverage activity you can do is talk to your customers and build your product. But like, is there? I don't know. Right now, do you see a future where like you do less of that, or is that just kind of ingrained in your in your day to day, and that's just kind of what you do because you know how important it is to make sure you're understanding them on a deep level? I mean, I guess I've never been at like a Series A or Series B stage, so I can't give you an exact idea of how it's going to evolve. But I would imagine, just given the other tasks that you would have to do going forward, that you would have to 
you would have to replace yourself in a number of different areas going forward. I would think that the customer connection is probably one of the last ones that you would want to do that on and you would want to try and maintain as much contact as possible because you still need to know the, the product and how it's working and the people it's affecting regardless. But uh, I, do, I do agree with uh, the sentiment that you shared that, you know, it's not going to be, it, it can't be the same way forever. Otherwise, you're just probably not growing. Definitely. I, I like that you, that you mentioned that that's like the last, the last one that you should kind of like not give up, but like, I guess, outsource. Because I tell a lot of people, this is kind of like a, it shouldn't be a controversial take, but in Phoenix, it definitely is. I'm just like, when you first start a company, don't, don't start on ads. Uh, don't start on Facebook ads or on Google ads because you're automating away your relationship with your, with your customers. You can't learn anything about them if you're just doing ads. And everyone's like, oh, no, ads work and whatever. But, just like, what, but it goes back to the point you just said, like, that is the, the, the thing that is most important. And the thing is, like, you don't just do it in the beginning, then you stop. Like, the market changes. You got to be ahead of the curve. Um, speak it like it's just, and the only way to do that is to talk to your people. So that's cool that you're kind of aligned on that. What other lessons have you learned so far? And so you said a lot last year and change, what have you learned about leadership or operating or managing, um, you know, since you've started this company? Yeah. So I guess in terms of leadership, the main thing is that you kind of have to cater your style to every other individual you can't usually you can't sorry did i get cut out there for a second you're good yeah you got cut off but you can keep going all yeah. in the post so i don't think you can use the same approach to absolutely everyone you you do have to adopt some sort of personalization and that doesn't mean that you have to be fake or uh dis uh, ingenuine in any aspect it just means that you have to kind of get a be able to understand how people are going to respond to certain styles or how people are going to respond in certain situations and try to cater to them as much as possible to evoke the most positive reaction that you can uh in terms of overall lessons i guess just about the business and operating a company uh team is essential it's critical it's very important to have a good team who supports you who you can support and just a mutual relationship between uh, amongst one another where you know when you're not going to feel your best every single day someone can hopefully pick up the slack when you're down and you got to do the same for everyone else when they're feeling the that way as well right uh business i think number the two biggest things are the market has to be attractive and the timing has to be right and uh, thankfully the timing maybe just by stroke of luck is pretty good for us because uh, all these larger players are beginning to announce that you're that they're entering this market and uh, yeah that's uh, that's what I have to say to that do you have a theory on time like combining the last two points you just said um, you know, there is always time. Uh, who, who says it? I don't know. Probably someone from A16Z or someone says, no, it's a Sequoia thing. That's, you know, there's no bad idea. There's just bad timing. 
and some people, you know, the people that got into VR, you know, in the 2000s, you know, they weren't necessarily wrong. They were just got the wrong time. So how do you, do you, do you have any thoughts on combining those two things? How do you know when a market is ready to enter and how do you know if it's uh, too early to enter or potentially too late because incumbents already or already took, took all the market share? Well, I think the easiest way to prove or disprove that hypothesis, like I wouldn't be smart enough to just say for somebody to tell me a bunch of different characteristics and me for me to be able to say, yeah, that market's hot, go in it. I think the easiest, sorry, the easiest way to prove or disprove is to actually uh, see if you can get a customer, see if you can get paying customers to convert. And if you can, that gives you at least some level of validation. Even if there's competitors, there's probably room in the market. Competition really isn't a massive issue. If you can provide a valuable product to a number of customers and you can build these relationships, you can develop your product to a point where it can scale. All right, that leads me to one of my favorite questions that I ask. Um, I'm curious to get your answer. Uh, so. I feel like there's two sides of the spectrum on just, uh, you know, when to enter a market. There is the lean startup side, which is like, take out your magnifying glass, do your interviews, see what the landscape is, and then build what users want. Then on the other side of the spectrum, there's like Keith Raboyism, which is just like, and same with Peter Thiel. It's like, no, just like take your vision and push it into the world, regardless of, of if people want it, because they, you know, they may not want it, but they may need it, et cetera. Where do you fall on the spectrum of lean startup versus uh, doesn't matter, just, just to see if people want your idea, forget about the feedback in the beginning? I think it's more towards sort of the, the lean startup model than the other one that you had mentioned. And that's just because, you know, when people are at a certain stage, they might have enough of a macro understanding to be able to see the trends and to be able to forecast what's going to happen in the future just because they've seen so much and they've been through so much. Because I'm more of at an earlier stage, I don't necessarily have that luxury. So I think I would have to operate under the model where I push something out and get small scale samples repetitively to be able to understand if this is actually going in the right direction. Yeah, I feel that. I I do think that as I get, you know, I'm still, you know, a pretty a pretty young guy. I don't have like too much experience, but I do feel like I mean, I have more experience than I did 5 years ago. And I I do think that I don't know, I, I definitely think I fall on the Keith Raboy camp because because it's one of these things where like you said uh, you said like, you know, the way you know if a market is good is if you can build something and people start paying you for it, you have something. And, uh, you know, there's plenty of times that incumbents have gotten disrupted. That's the point. That's like all business. Um, so then I feel like it comes down to like the strength of like the evangelist in the founder. Uh, like if you have a founder that is just the biggest evangelist and people are going to, you know, you know, will pay money for the product, I feel like that combo, you just can't beat it, which is why I feel like I'm more on the boy side, but also I'm not the one right now. I'm like, not, I don't have my own company. I'm working for another company. So maybe there's like, uh, I don't know. I'm just like, that, that's something I think a lot about, like what side of the spectrum is best. Yeah. Like I would agree with you in certain aspects because I mean, a lot of the crazy things that have happened in the world wouldn't happen without those types of people that push their vision into what the world is going to be and will it into existence. 
However, you probably have a bunch of people who try to push something really, really stupid into existence and end up burning a lot of time or a lot of uh, their own mental capacity. So it's, it's hard to know when to have that balance and when to not have that balance and who is right and who is wrong and what element of luck plays a factor in geography here. So it, like it's a very complex question to be able to answer. At this point, I, I would be more in the primary camp, but I do feel that, again, with more experience and more, more sort of uh, validity under my belt, you, you can move more and more towards the second camp, especially if you're in the right time and place. And a lot of these, a lot of these people come from the big hubs of activity, right? Right. That's such an important point that, you know, you mentioned luck, which always plays a part. And you mentioned, um, like, what if you're wrong? Like, if, if everyone went by this thing of like, oh, just push your idea into the world, like, God help all of us. There's so many founders that, including myself, that have had stupid ideas that think it's the best idea in the world, but the market you know, it can't, you know, above like a thousand dollars a month or 1200, you know, a little bit, you know, it won't, it won't bear, you know, it won't take it. Uh, so yeah. I definitely think that's a very insightful observation, um, or just like thought. So what other do you, so since you started this company, are there any other things that you've learned, not necessarily about business or operating, but um, on the higher level industries, trends, knowing, you know, markets, things like that, I guess, what have you learned on, I guess, the macro sense and or another way to ask the question is, are there any trends uh, or industries that are interesting to you that like you feel like are moving that might be like a good time to get into even if you can't? Yeah, I mean, I would say that any sort of industry, which is predominantly focused on a face-to-face -face interaction is bound to move more towards the digital space. Some of them you have to get a little bit more creative in how that's going to happen. And some of them take more time depending on how things are regulated. So for example, pharmacies are not necessarily uh, insanely regulated to the point of like how doctor's visits would be or something like that, right? So you have to think about the technical infrastructure that would be required, how data is passed, and what type of data that you would store to be able to offer these types of solutions. But the whole, the whole world in general is moving towards more digital capabilities in pretty much every market that you can sort of get your hands on. And the, the ones that tend to be sticking to that tend to be sticking to more of the older practices are typically the ones that are a little bit more regulated. But I do think that those will have a steeper tipping point when they do actually convert. So what I mean by that is if nobody, uh, so now might be a good example of this actually with everything going on with the coronavirus. Uh, a lot of universities are offering online courses now right how would that how is that going to change the market going forward for all the providers of these online tools 
going forward after people return to classes, I would I would bet that the schools would have a larger appetite to offer online classes going forward after this. Or doctors are probably more willing to offer online consultations or online appointments, and patients are probably more willing to actually visit their doctors online because they don't want to go into an office and get sick. Right. So I would think that those type of trajectories would change fairly quickly or these type of events would have a large scale impact on them. Man, can we, I would love to like camp, camp out in this area for, uh, for a second. Um, I definitely don't want to do doom and gloom regarding the coronavirus. I do want to talk about kind of the opposite, which is there are, I mean, great businesses in 2008 and 2009 were, were right after the recession hit. Um, and I think a primary reason for this, because, you know, great founders are going to start companies whenever they want to start companies, but potentially the, the mercenaries might not. Um, how, how do you, have a, do you have a thought for, you know, an 18 year old that can code sitting in his mom's basement because school, school shut down or 15 year old, whatever. How is someone supposed to think about business opportunities now in such a crazy time? Is it like, do you, do you have kind of a framework um, out, outside of the one you already mentioned, which is a great framework, which is like, look at online education. Is there anything else that someone could look at with what's going on to start a company? I think at such an early stage, like for example, when I, when I was 18, I wasn't, I wasn't thinking about any of these things. So it's a little bit difficult for me to give advice to an 18 year old when I wouldn't be in that place uh, at that point. However, let's actually say, let's say you were your current age, but you're not working on like, like if you were just, if you could do, if you had 24 hours, a day, I mean, we all have 24 hours a day, but like with your current knowledge, let's say you just weren't working on cab tracks, you know, in another universe and this was all happening. How would you yeah. think about like, Oh, like where do I want to get into Like, what, what would you be thinking? Yeah. So I think you, you have to think about the markets of the future and how things are going to change in the future and all the derivative products that big changes are going to bring in. So obviously self-driving cars are going to be a big thing, but you know, there are massive companies working on those things like Google and uh, even Apple and all the other companies out there. But what are all the micro supporting infrastructure that is going to be required for you know a little guy who's like an 18 year old that can get into or just do it as like sort of a fun project to see uh what part of that larger future network that they can build out yeah do you i'm speaking of kind of networks and future networks do you have um any are you paying attention at all it's just kind of obscure but esports um, do you, is, are you, on a scale from one to 10, are you, do you spend any time thinking about esports, or is that totally, totally left field? I'll tell you why I ask in a second. Sorry, just to clarify, you're asking if I spend any time looking into esports? Yeah, just like, yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, you know what? Not really. I've never been a big gamer or anything like that. And that's just not something that I'm crazy interested in. But from what I hear about like the market growth and everything, I hear a lot of positive things. So I haven't been into into esports ever until I recently got an Oculus. I mean, I'm still not into esports, but I just got an Oculus Quest like three months ago, 
And this shit is wild. And it's making me think, like, what does virtual reality esports look like? And and I am kind of interested in the the market. I won't even call it a market opportunity because VR is still too expensive. But if in the next year, you know, Facebook releases a headset that's half the price of Quest, 200 bucks, um, I I think esports could have a huge rise in the next year with schools being shut down. And honestly, like I think they're going to be shut down for a while. I'm not an expert. If you're listening, I'm, you, they may already be back up. Who the hell knows? But I feel like 2020 esports could have a could have a year. And I feel like one day I want to get into that industry. But right now I'm like super content with what I'm doing. But the combination of VR and and esports and school shutdown has to lead to something. Uh, and I wonder, I want to just wonder who's going to build it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you even take that further, like think of where VR can help in those areas. I mean, business meetings, you could potentially have people seeing each other face to face without actually traveling, or you could conduct a whole lesson through a virtual classroom rather than students coming into the class. So definitely a lot of areas in which VR could help out. But yeah, I do agree that the actual headsets are probably a little bit too more too expensive right now. Naturally, the cost of these things do go down over time though. For sure. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's just interesting how like it wasn't on my radar at all. And then I just like impulsively got this quest and now I'm like, holy shit, like this thing's pretty cool. It's like just as cool as the Rift, but it's tetherless. Is so there any other time with it now? One more time? Do you spend a lot of time on it now? Yeah, well, I don't spend, I wouldn't say a lot of time, but I consistently, I, so I don't spend a lot of time, but I consistently spend time. Like every day I'll spend 20 minutes on it, 30, I mean, maybe that's a lot, I don't know. Um, but I, I play, you know, this game that I really like racket RX and, and like, uh, there's a shooter game and a boxing game. And uh, what's key for me is that I'm someone, I, I don't play video games. I haven't played video games since, since 10, uh, since 10 years old, you know, with RuneScape and stuff. I'm not a gamer, but you put this thing, you know, in my apartment and I play every day now. And that's, yeah. I'm just observing myself. I'm like, huh. I don't know. Like, like, I just is that could that be extrapolated for everyone? Like, this gets put into their room. Will they play like I do, even if they weren't gamers before? And like, that's that's something I I spend time thinking about. Um, you know, not starting anything in the near future, but like two, three, four, five years away. I'm like, I'm keeping my eyes on that for sure. Yeah, no, I mean, I agree. I have sort of an addictive personality, so I'm I'm gonna try to stay away from it for now because that twenty or thirty minutes might be two or three hours for me pretty easily oh man i you're probably right it is is it just for me i i just i don't know some there are some days that i do spend more time than i should in there and i usually stop because it dies <laughs> but yeah. i i wouldn't say i'm a like i'm definitely not to the point and i don't think i'll ever get to the point where i'm addicted to it and i like i want to spend more time there than you know in the real world um you know, I do, I do think some people use it as a release, but like, I don't use it as a release. It's just kind of like helps me cool my mind. Like after I'm working, after I'm done working, I'm like, okay, let's play some racquetball or something. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's completely fine. As long as, you know, the next time that we, we have this little chat, you're not checked into uh, any sort of rehab facility for Oculus addiction. <laughs> well, maybe okay. if the next time that we have this talk, what if, you know, maybe I'll just be permanently have be wearing my Oculus Quest and I'll just be talking to you in VR right now. You know, Zoom. There can, you go. There's no way. There's no way Zoom is not thinking about that. 
yeah, of course. In one one person in that company is thinking about it. I know it. Uh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, Zoom is such a great tool in itself, though. It's so much better than everything else. Why do you Why do you think it is? Because it's 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 all it's just video chat. It's not like crazy different. But I agree. Like I don't. I use Zoom. We're on Zoom right now. Why is Zoom so much better? And why does everyone like? Everyone agrees Zoom's the best, but like, do you know why it is? So, I don't, I don't know the full answer to that. But for me, every time I've used Zoom, it just works. Skype, any of the other services, lots of errors. People are always cutting in and out. Zoom has, it's obviously not 100% flawless, but it's the, the actual capacity and the frequency with which it works in great quality is much higher than anyone else I've ever used. That's a great, that's a great explanation. It just works. Like when you, when you press that button, you know, you know what you're going to get on the other side versus appear in or Skype or, you know, Google me. That's not the case. Whenever anyone invites me to a meeting on any of those other things, I kind of cringe because I know we're going to spend the first five to 10 minutes figuring out how to get everything working. (laughs) That's so funny. And zoom also, I mean, I, I'm not an investor and I don't think about things in this lens, so I could be wrong, but I do feel like it has at least some light network effects. Cause if I, if like everyone uses it, the, the 2% of people that aren't using it are going to start using it cause everyone else is using it. Um, versus eh, maybe it doesn't have network effects. I don't know. Like it, like you, me being on it does not make it better for you, but it just has strong yeah. something, you know, like, I don't know. Yeah, but you being on it kind of forced me to use it. So maybe it's not necessarily the network effect in the textbook definition of it, but there is some sort of uh, there is some sort of brand evangelism going on there that is helping it spread. For sure, for sure. What other um, what other products do you? Uh, what other products do you admire or like, or even even not just products, but like technologies, industries, more so going much higher level, like what are things that you that you might think about that you enjoy in, you know, in technology or in business, um, whether it's a tool, product, idea, anything like that? Well, I mean, I think my my sort of thinking is always with the customer. So any sort of products or technologies that solve a real solution things that I'm interested in Uh, I mean there are a lot of cool things out there uh, a lot of which I don't necessarily understand is how it's gonna help me or (laughs) how it's gonna help anyone else in the immediate future but like for example uh, something like slack when it first came out it was just like people were thinking like why is this so different than something like whatsapp or whatever but they figured out that you know the key feature differentiations made a massive difference to the people that they actually sold it to those people were never going to use whatsapp to communicate in that way and the fact that they were able to build this product which looks very very simple and actually scale it is really impressive in my opinion yeah, I they focus on the little things that to an average person are like, what the hell? But for the person that would be the ideal user for Slack, are like, holy shit, this is amazing, and that's 
that's how they cross the chasm and that's how they're going to be Mike. That's how they've probably already beaten Microsoft, you know, at, at like kind of their own game. Um, yeah, exactly. Do you, do you have any, I mean, this is more like macro stuff, but do you feel confident about Slack's public future um, as a public company? Do you think they have like a path towards more market dominance or do you think the, I don't know. I, like, do you, I, I don't know if you spend much time thinking about like lar- that kind of larger stuff. Um, I have a hard time seeing it becoming, you know, ten, like five times bigger than it currently is. But um, I don't know. Do you, do you have thoughts on, on the next 10 years for Slack? Well, I think there are a couple good indicators for them, but I do think they have to do a little bit more, get into something else or try and vertically integrate somehow into another area which could derive more value. Uh, The reason, the biggest positive indicator I see is I just think working from home is going to become more common, which would, I think, necessitate more sort of chat. like you probably have heard of now, a lot of people are being sent home to work from home. So I, I think that Slack is being used more frequently as well, which would play good for them. But yeah, again, I don't know how much further they could grow with what they have ex- currently in its current state. I don't know what sort of the next evolution of Slack is, but I think they... And I'm sure they, they think of these types of things all the time. So they, they probably have their sights on a bigger picture. Yeah, Stuart Butterfield is a smart, smart dude. I have no doubt that, that he's, he's on it. It just sucks that they're – I mean, be, man, being a public company must really suck for a CEO because, like, if you're a private company, you could struggle for a while, you know, while you're building a great product, launch a product, then, like, you know, you're, you're blowing up. But like everyone knows where you're at as a public um, company, it must suck. But like that, that is literally what you have to do if you raise venture capital and you get to a certain size. Um, it just kind of like is unfortunate. That's like the end thing. But that's kinda, you got to pay back your investors. So like, how about you? Like, how do you think about like how do you think about your exit? I hate when investors ask that. Like, oh, like what's your exit strategy? I know it's so early, but just as a more higher level, just thoughts on it. Do you like want? Do you like? Would you be down to run a public company? Like, do you want to get acquired? Is that way too even early to talk about any of that? Just how do you think about the exit, the end plan? I mean, my perspective on this is: as long as I'm creating value for the customers that I have, and whatever ends up happening, whether it's down the line and exit or down the line becoming public or operating remaining a private company whatever situation that may be as long as the correct step is taken to increase the value or to maintain the optimal value for the customers that we have we're making the right decision so for example if it is an exit if it's aligned within an organization that is committed to expanding our service capability and help us do this faster then that's that's not a bad thing same thing with public markets if you can raise the money to be able to increase your service capacity to be able to expand your market share and fulfill your customers needs that's a good thing as well i feel like that was a very 
good answer for a public company CEO. <laughs> I feel like that might suit you. Uh, but, well, cool. So I have a couple more questions, and then we'll we'll call it a day. Um, so going back to your company, what would you say is the big vision? Let's say you're a public company. No, let's say it's right before you're a public company. So like you're, you've done everything that you can do. You're t- it's 10, 15 years down the line and you're crushing it. What does your product look like? And, you know, who's it competing with? What market is it in? You know, just share the vision a little bit. Yeah. So, I mean, at like a thousand foot view, we think that we can operate across multiple countries and bring the brick and mortar pharmacies more towards the digital age by continually vertically integrating into their practices through a number of different functions. So we see that community pharmacy as an important pillar within the neighborhood, but we do believe that they will need to service their customers in a number of different ways in the future. And like at this point, we are, nobody has the answer to exactly how everything is going to happen, but things will be changing and things will be changing fairly quickly and their workflows will need to change to accommodate that. And as long as we stay in their good graces and as long as we serve them, uh, as long as we serve them as optimally as we say we are, we can continue to grow in this market and we can continue to push forward into their other functions. All right. And to make all that happen, by the way, that's all awesome. That's a great, a great vision. You're going to need some help. You know, you'll need help from employees, from customers, from maybe investors. And you'll also need help from forward down, forward thinking founders audience. So my last question for you today is, do you have an ask for the listeners? Is there something that any of us can help you with? Time to be selfish for a second. What do you need and how can we help? Yeah, so to any of the listeners that are out there and yourself, I mean, I'm always open to any sort of connection or potential introductions that could lead to fruitful conversations or allow us to expand our footprint. So anyone that could introduce us to any sort of conversation, which would be interesting, I would welcome much like yourself. At this point, it's kind of like an open slate. I wouldn't say no to anything. All right, there you have it. And if someone wanted to get in touch with you or find your website or follow you on Twitter, what are some of like a couple of handles or websites or emails that you can drop so they can connect with you? Yeah, they can find me obviously on LinkedIn. Uh, I don't know if you if you have the link there, but I think it's like the LinkedIn thing and then jazzy slash tour or jazzy dash tour, but they could email me at jazzy, J-A-S-I at cabtrex.com. That's C-A-B-T-R-E-K-S.com. And you can find the website as at www.cabtrex.com. All right. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. I am really into what you're doing. And I hope you one day find that you become that public company and be that great CEO, or you find that acquire and you take over the world with Cabtrex. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate that, and hopefully you'll invite me back on when that happens. Absolutely. Okay. Thank you, everyone, for tuning into that episode. I hope you really enjoyed it. And luckily, there's another one coming up real soon. But before then, I have a couple things to tell you. First, 
If you're listening to this and you think you're working on something cool or you think you're smart, hit me up on Twitter. I am at Matt underscore Sherman, and that is Matt with one T. So hit me up, shoot me a DM, and I'm happy to check out what you're working on and maybe we can get you on the pod. But at the very least, I'm happy to give you feedback on your product or project or startup. Lastly, if you can please rate this podcast in the iTunes store, that would be awesome. I'm trying to get up in the rankings so more people can discover these awesome founders. And the only way to do that, or one of the ways to do that, is growing with rankings. So if you like what you're listening to, please just go onto the iTunes store and give it five stars or four, you know, or three. I'm not going to tell you what to give, but just tell whatever I deserve, you should rate that. With that, I'm signing off. See you next time. Bye.